Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Life is full of what-ifs. Some awesome. Like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Four and a half thousand years ago, people were building places where they could, apart from anything else, rely on some kind of contact with their fellow human beings. I, th- I think that's moving. That that need has never gone away, and in some ways, in the 21st century, it's been made even more intense. In this week's podcast, we're travelling in a landscape swirling with myths and legends to a time when our ancestors had moved from being hunter-gatherers to farmers, and we're starting to make marks on the landscape. With colossal effort, they built the largest artificial prehistoric mound in the whole of Europe. A powerful statement that shouts, We are here. I'm stepping out across Britain to discover 100 remarkable places that have shaped you, me and the whole world. I'm Neil Oliver and this is my love letter to the British Isles. Last week's podcast, we travelled to the world's largest stone circle at Avebury. Where's the next stop on our journey? Well, we're still in Wiltshire, at a place that's full of intrigue and unanswered questions. When the first farmers in these islands were beginning to make sense of the world, the stars, the seasons, creation and their place within it, they built the extraordinary Neolithic mound that we call Silbury Hill. Silbury Hill, well it's not a hill in that it's man-made, but it's big enough to count as a hill. Uh, It's 130-ish feet tall uh, and it covers a footprint of about six acres. It's huge. It's as big, it's four and a half thousand years old. It was, it was built, they, they began construction on it about two and a half thousand years before the birth of Christ. These, these building-obsessed Neolithic farmers. Um, and it's as big as the Egyptian pyramids that were being built at that time. Although it lacks the, some of the architectural sophistication, you might say. It, it's a bit more of a, of a primitive. It's, it's more or less perfectly round. 
in its in its shape if you viewed it from above, and it's it's the sort of big, uh, gently conical shape that you would get if you kind of emptied out uh, sand from a from a giant bucket, and it would develop that kind of round pyramid cone like shape, and obviously it's covered in grass, uh, so it looks green, uh, but like everything else in that area, it was built by digging up chalk rubble and heaping it up. So once upon a time, it would have been white. And archaeologists have looked into its morphology and have determined that it was built a bit like a wedding cake. If you can picture that tiered, stepped structure that a a traditional wedding cake has. So they must have dug out an amount of chalk rubble and laid it out in a disc shape and then stepped in a bit and made a slightly smaller disc of rubble on top of that and then on, and then a slightly smaller disc of rubble on top of that until you know until eventually they had this multiple tiered multiple layered white wedding cake structure so you asked me what it's like to approach it, it It's very close, as in it's within a few minutes' walk of West Kennet, Longbarrow, the burial chamber that we've already talked about. You can walk between the two in a matter of minutes. So it's absolutely astonishing when you see it, because no wonder people called it a hill, because it it looks too big to be something that people made four and a half thousand years ago. It's massive. It towers over the landscape. Uh, So you're completely struck by its presence, uh, but it, it does take longer uh, to appreciate fully what you're dealing with at Silbury. The material for its construction was quarried right where the right where the mound is. So it now sits effectively in a shallow, a wide, shallow dish, m- much more than six acres in area, and that's the scoop from which the chalk rubble was smashed out and then gradually heaped up in the middle. So it's it's sitting in a a man-made dish, which you really can't appreciate now. Too much time has elapsed, and it's all all covered over with grass and soil and the rest. But the fact of the matter is, it's kind of like, if you imagine, I don't know, like a... I suppose in your mind's eye, you could picture one of those radio satellite dishes, which has the, the wide, shallow saucer, and then rising out of the middle of it, there's that kind of cone-like structure that beams out and receives and transmits the messages. It's a bit like that with the dish flat on its back and Silbury Hill rising up from the centre. So when it was uh, when it was fresh when it was still white it would have been a truly spectacular uh, fixture in the landscape and so on arrival, because most people don't know it's there uh, and you could drive past it and not realise what it was. Or you might think it was left over from the industrial past. You know those kind of um, bings and spoil heaps that you get sometimes that have been left behind by mining or or the extraction of rock to, you know, to make paraffin from, that kind of thing that you see dotted about the landscape. You could mistake it for something as a, a product of the Industrial Revolution. But in fact, it was built four and a half thousand years ago by farmers who you would have thought had enough to do in their busy lives without setting out to create their own mountain but there you go and it's quite extraordinary that it was tiered because if you, if you 
if you see it now, you'd just think it was like a round Teletubbies type cone. Yeah, it's so big, it just looks like a, a hill. You just think it was a funny looking hill. Uh, but that's just the passage of time. We know a lot more about it. Uh, people have been messing around with Silbury Hill for hundreds of years. People knew that it was man-made. People, you know, people came from far and wide to burrow into it at different times uh, because there were various legends grew up about there being a, a, a treasure in, this, in the centre of it. You know, maybe somebody very important, like a king, had been buried there, you know, a la an Egyptian pharaoh. And they were expecting maybe to get in there and find, you know, like the, the treasure of Tutankhamun. Uh, and so people burrowed in at, at ground level, tunnels, uh, and then there was also uh, a, a shaft dropped from the very top. Uh, and, and folk had burrowed down right from the top, right down to the old ground surface. Uh, and what this had done, oh, they found nothing. There never was a burial chamber or anything else inside. If anyone ever asks what's inside Silbury Hill, as far as we know, absolutely nothing. It's just a mound. It's just, it's just a mound. Nobody was buried there. There's no internal structure, really, beyond the fact that it is built in these in a, as a set of circular tiers. Uh, and the, the the fact that it had been, especially the, the the shaft that had been dropped from the top, had destabilised the whole structure. There's a natural process that that starts off in the aftermath of a of a shaft being dropped and then not backfilled it causes the whole thing to collapse from the top. And so, so Silbury Hill was kind of falling inside itself. It was collapsing like a flan that had been left out of the oven somewhere cold. It was just gradually dropping. It, it was swallowing itself. Uh, and it was a major problem and, and various attempts had been made to deal with it. But finally, oh, about 10 or 15 years ago, an opportunity was taken to do it properly. Uh, and so English Heritage oversaw a project to reinforce the structure, to, to stop the, the the problem in its tracks. Uh, and so, so the, the old t- tunnel workings and the shaft, they were all cleared out properly. Uh, and before they backfilled them and reinforced everything to, to give the thing back its internal structural integrity, archaeologists and others went inside. And I was I was there. And I got the opportunity to wander down the tunnel, one of the tunnels, right to the centre, so that you're underneath the, you're underneath the, the, the summit. And so we were on the, the original ground surface, what had been ground surface when the Neolithic farmers began their massive construction project. And we were in, oh, how would you describe it? It's like being in a, a space borrowed from the chalk. You know, the, the the tunnel should never have been there. The, the Neolithic farmers hadn't made it. They had made a complete solid structure. And so this tunnel we were in was kind of on loan from the chalk. And the sense was of it of it being a debt that was shortly to be repaid. It was going to be made good. But there was a very strange sensation to be had standing underneath Silbury Hill. There's only a few places I've ever been in my life where I've had even the outside of the sensation of maybe being about to see a ghost but I was sort of filled with childlike hope that I might catch sight of something out the corner of my eye something from a few thousand years ago but of course uh, of course nothing happened 
But that, the fact that those tunnels and that shaft was there meant that the structural engineers and archaeologists could have a proper look at it. And it was that, it was that opportunity that let us understand as much as we do, or a lot of, of what we do about its um, construction. And it, what was revealed was that there were, there seems to have been pauses. You know, for example, you build a, a one of these circular tiers. And then it looked as though enough time had been left by the farmers for a turf layer to form on top. So soil and, and maybe grass had formed over it. And, and then at some, after some time had passed, the, the work started again and, and they built another tier. So, so if, because that shaft from the top provided a kind of a slice as though through a cake, we could see the layers and it became evident that it hadn't been a sustained building project. And there were various radiocarbon dates were obtained from organic material in the layers. And it was very difficult to assess, but there was at least the possibility that Silbury Hill had been under construction for hundreds of years. In fact, to, to give you a sense of how long it was going on, you might want to imagine for the fun of it that King Henry VIII, on the day of his coronation in 1509, had suggested building the Millennium Dome. And then it wasn't finished until the year 2000. That's the kind of time frame you might be talking about. So imagine that. So you've got people, we've talked in the past about there being places that people knew they could go and meet people. Like Avebury, like Stonehenge, like the Ness of Brodgar in Orkney. Well, people were going to Silbury Hill knowing that they would never see the completion. If, if, if anyone ever had the finished picture in their head, you know, we're going to build a tall mound. Well, the vast majority of the people who took part in the process of constructing it never saw it finished. And they would know that their children, after they were too old, their children would come along and they would help build it and they would never see it finished either and the grandchildren would never see it finished and the great-grandchildren would never see it finished it was just it was spread out potentially over such a long period that once again finishing it was never really high on anybody's agenda what mattered was the building of Silbury Hill What's extraordinary is that building on that scale and in that time frame, you'd surely have imagined they'd have needed a set of written plans. How did they do it? It does suggest that it was being handed that the idea for what Silbury Hill should be was being handed down, you know, father to son, mother to daughter, down through the generations. And you know, if you think about kind of biblical parallels, you know, there's obviously there's the very old Old Testament story about the Tower of Babel. You know, the people had ambitions to, to build a tower all the way up to heaven so that they could get up to where God was. And, you know, so they start building it and then, you know, God comes down and decides to teach them a thing or two about the realities of life. And he scatters them. While they're building the tower, they all speak the same language. So he sees that everyone speaking the same language is a bad idea because they can get up to big projects. So he comes down and he scatters them and he, he makes them all speak different tongues, different languages, hence Babel you know, for something that you can't understand. But the aspiration was there to build some massive structure. And if there ever was 
a structure in the in the in the Holy Land a few thousand years ago that was the Tower of Babel. It would certainly have been a stepped pyramid of some kind because it's it's an easy structure to build, and if you want to gain height, uh, you need to give. Uh, you can't just heap forever because it will just slump. It, it, and by by building in these in these rising tiers like a stepped pyramid, like a ziggurat, it it, it makes it, it gives it a better chance of of staying upright and not collapsing. And and Silbury Hill has that structural integrity. Uh, but the fact that the Tower of Babel is there, and all over the world, people, you know, in, in South America, you know, the ziggurats were built by the by the ancient peoples there, and the Egyptians did it in Egypt. It, it's long been a an aspiration where you've probably got someone in control, someone that's able to uh, marshal a lot of labour, uh, and where they want to, you know, make their mark and declare themselves important. You get guys like that, and they want to. They want to build enormous structures, put their name on it. This is mine. You know, my name is Ozymandias, King of Kings. Look upon my works, you mighty in despair. It's it's long been part of the ambition of powerful people to leave behind some massive evidence of their life. And that, no doubt, was, was part of at least the original inspiration for Silbury Hill. It's people saying, you know, we are here. It's always fascinating to me that the similarities that there are between that time and this time, that there are certain aspects of human personality, human character that, that seem to sustain themselves for thousands of years. Through the 20th and the 21st century, more and more people in the West were convinced of the idea that there was no grand design, there was no God, there was no meaning. The scientific methods uh, encouraged more and more people to accept that there were just natural processes, evolution, uh, you know, that the the universe was just unfolding subject to natural laws and it was all random. And and the the realisation that came out of that was that we are therefore, you know, insignificant. And and so that process that's been going on for a couple of centuries now, it it has atomised people. And by that I mean that people have begun to feel small, just as individual insignificant dots on a pale blue dot falling through eternity and there not being any meaning. And depending on the way your psychology works, that can be quite distressing for some scientific people, practical, rational people can take that in their stride maybe. Uh, And if you've got a good life and you've got a lot of things going on in your life and you're happy, uh, you might be able to absorb that reality and keep going forward but for other people that sense of of being atomized is has brought unhappiness what that, what all of that suggests to me is that for different reasons four and a half thousand years ago the neolithic farmers had begun to understand enough of what was going on that they may well have been feeling tiny in an infinite universe and they may have been looking up at the at the sky and and seeing the patterns repeating and getting a sense that the universe was vast and they were tiny and that sooner or later they were going to die and be forgotten and that some of that uh, embarking upon these big building projects might have been an attempt to at least leave something behind that says we are here. You know, we use smartphones like hand axes to carve out spaces in the forest of the global population 
you know, where we can where we can see something that makes sense to us. You know, that's the tool that we have in our hands all the time. Four and a half thousand years ago, they were using other tools to create sites. We still use the same word, you know. I mean, websites. We still talk about sites. Four and a half thousand years ago, people were building places where they could, apart from anything else, rely on some kind of contact with their fellow human beings. I, th- I think that's moving. That that need has never gone away, and in some ways, in the 21st century, it's been made even more intense. Would this massive white mound have acted as a beacon? Ah, uh-huh. it now sits like a kind of an island of the past, surrounded by, you know, modern roads, and you know there are towns and villages scattered through Wiltshire, and there are planes flying overhead and power lines, and you know there's all the rest of the uh, the infrastructure of of the 21st century. But when you go to Silverhill, and because you can see West Kennet, and you know that it's that that old landscape, that landscape was was traversed anyway by ancient ways. You know, there's a there's a trackway across the chalk high land. You know, there's a trackway that leads from sort of the vicinity of say Salisbury, all the way across to Kent, across the chalk, and it it would have been in the absence of modern roads, there would have been this way that people could see because. In that landscape, where people, or indeed animals, walk the same way over and over again, it wears away the grass and the soil and you get these white tracks. And the appearance of those white tracks in the landscape, they may well have inspired other people to, to make their own carvings, like things like the Uffington White Horse and the Rude Man of Cern, these, the, you know, the giant chalk figure. Yeah. You know, people may have been inspired to do that because they could see that these trackways left these permanent lines. And so... Places like West Kennet and Silbury would have been would have been connected up by by their proximity to the way. You, you know, it was they were visible from a way that people had to use to travel from east to west and west to east across the widest part of England. You know, so the first probably the first things that were in that landscape were trackways that people built almost inadvertently just by always following the high ground to keep away from the soft, muddy ground underfoot. They would go up onto the high ground where you could keep on seeing where you were. You know, people, when they're walking, they have a tendency to want to get up high so they can orientate themselves. And so the first thing probably in that landscape was this this way, this white way from west to east, east to west, depending on which way you were walking. And then as, as once the farmers colonised and settled... You know, they, they, they built all manner of things in the vicinity of that way. And so Silbury Hill is part of a deliberately constructed landscape. You know, you don't just think about each site on its own. It all joins up. It's You're looking at pieces of a puzzle. Stonehenge, Avebury, Silbury Hill, West Kennet, and scores of other Neolithic sites besides once upon a time they all made sense these places were contemporary with one another they were all there in the landscape being modified, being augmented, some would be busy and more popular and be seeing more action, others maybe lying dormant, but they were all there 
they were all there and the and the people who were moving around that landscape understood what those man-made places uh, were telling them It's a World Heritage Site, isn't it? It's been recognised for its importance. It is. In the same way that when we talked about um, the Ness of Brodgar up on Orkney, off the, off the north-east of Scotland, that sits right smack at the centre of the World Heritage Site that's known as the Heart of Neolithic Orkney. And it takes in Maze Howe, which is a burial tomb with a, with a passage and a chamber in it and it takes in the ring of Brodgar, the stones of Stennis and there's, there's no doubt that there was rich contact between the people who were building and using Orkney and those who came after them who built Avebury and Stonehenge and the rest. You know, Avebury and Stonehenge are significantly younger than the ring of Brodgar and the stones of Stennis by centuries uh, and there are there are various hints in the way that places like uh, Avebury and others were put together in Stonehenge, that they were the, the builders there were mindful of the the design of uh, Nessa Brodgar, uh, and the way in which the Ring of Brodgar and the Stones of Stennis were linked by the, that narrow isthmus of land. So you had this there's this narrow finger of land up in Orkney that, that takes you from the Ring of Brodgar through the sto- through the Nessa Brodgar out to the stones of Stennis and then you're back on a you know you're back on a wider terrain away from the, the lochs and there's Maze Howe which is this um, burial tomb and down amongst Avebury there's delineated avenues of stone pairs of stones that 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 delineate trackways that you're supposed to walk from one place to another and there's very good uh, archaeological reasoning behind the suggestion that the the people who built in Wiltshire were self-consciously trying to imitate the structures that had already been in use on Orkney for four or five hundred years. So the knowledge is spreading. You know, that way of thinking, that that idea of, of making some sort of sense out of your place in the universe by using circles, the way they built their houses at Scarabray, the way they treated their dead, the pottery they made, which was called uh, grooved ware, because it had, you know, grooves uh, impressed into the soft clay before it was, uh, before it was, you know, cooked hard. All of that came into being first on Orkney, and then spread. Word of mouth, people liked it as an idea. It's almost as though it moved like a kind of a a, a suite of of uh, of design, a bit like people getting the first sight of uh, IKEA. And they, and they all fancy having the, the same furniture, the same tables, the same chairs. It was a bit like that. You know, what had been pioneered on Orkney, the shape of the houses, uh, the building of circular henges, that way of, you know, m- m- having contact with the cosmos, caught on and spread south. And then by the time you, by the time it's in, in full flower down around Stonehenge and Avebury, the, the people are, are building on old knowledge, old knowledge from Orkney and other places. It's the continuation of, an, of a long story. What were the lives of the people who built Silbury Hill like? They're, far, they're farmers. So farming at that point, farming began in the Middle East 
As far as we know, the oldest evidence that we find of domesticated crops and animals come out of the Middle East, Syria, Iran, Iraq, Turkey, that part of the world. And they domesticated uh, a kind of like, like wheat uh, and barley. They were domesticated first. And when farmers moved, or the technology moved from east into the west, you know, coming in the direction of Britain, it was those kind of crops that they brought with them as seed. You know, they would, they would have brought seed crop with them. Uh, and likewise, the animals, you know, the animals that were domesticated, probably the first animals that were domesticated were sheep. Sheep are easier to get hold of. If you've got wild sheep, wild goats, they're quite small, and you can grab hold of them and, you know, force them into pens and, and uh, enclosures. It's a bit trickier to go after wild bulls. The original of, of all cattle is the oroch, which stood about eight or nine feet tall at the shoulder, very aggressive, uh, massive horns, uh, did not appreciate being approached by human beings. Uh, so it presents quite a challenge. But nonetheless, by probably about nine or 10,000 years ago, around Iran, they had domesticated cattle. So the, the people living in the British Isles who had adopted farming uh, would have been growing in the main an early kind of wheat, barley, oats, uh, and they would have been keeping pigs, sheep, cattle. It's, it is fascinating that the, the domestication of animals, all of the species that could be domesticated were all domesticated by thousands of years ago. Uh, and if anybody ever tried domesticating things like African elephants or zebras or whatever, it didn't work. <laughs> and those those animals cannot be domesticated. All the animals that, for whatever reason, had traits that lent themselves to being domesticated, human beings had identified all of them. The horse, the pig, the sheep, the goat, the cow. No doubt some people came to a sticky end trying to domesticate African elephants <laughs> other species <laughs> but no that's not going to work <laughs> and and move on and so the so the farmers at, uh, in Wiltshire around that area that's what they were growing so they were clearing fields they wouldn't have necessarily been you know building walls around them the fields wouldn't have been enclosed they were open open land that were giving them cereal crops from which they would make porridge bread basic uh, foodstuffs that are filling quite nutritious and that would have been supplemented with a bit of meat, a bit of milk. Uh, they'd have continued to hunt, so as, as well as having domesticated animals, when the opportunity presented itself, they would have gone out and brought down wild game as, they, as and when they could. And it must have been the whole thing. The, the, the fact that places like Silbury were being constructed at all, it, it, it speaks of surplus and spare time. People aren't living from hand to mouth. It's not as if from the minute they get up in the morning until they finally collapse asleep, they have to be involved in the stuff of, you know, making food. That's They've got that organised to a point where they've got time, probably in the summertime, when the weather's quite good and you're waiting for the harvest, you can get on with things. And then likewise in the winter, there's downtime in the winter where there's nothing you can do. You know, you're waiting for the ground to be soft enough and for the to be enough sunshine and whatever to plant. But they had surplus, so they had food to get them through the hard times and they could think about other things. That The Neolithic is that period when, rather than the hunters, who all they seem to have done, by and large, was provide for themselves. With the advent of farming, people get the, get the opportunity to specialise, 
and do other things. And they embarked upon these great projects. Would the building phases have been marked by celebrations? Has any evidence of that been discovered? Uh, not as such. I mean, there's evidence of life going on around these places. You know, you find the tools, you know, you find the things that, that were in use. But it's easy to imagine that, that the work was, was possibly uh, all taking place in the same couple of months every year. And no doubt they marked the beginning, the coming together. Uh, and likewise, they might mark the end and the people would separate and go back to, you know, some of them would, would, live, to, would live locally, but others would have come from further afield maybe to take part in the, in the latest round of construction and there'd be farewell ceremonies, no doubt. But it's all, it's all supposition. We know that they were treating with, with their dead. You know, that's, that's something that's so old. You know, there's, there's evidence of Neanderthal burial. You're talking about a species that died out 30,000 years ago. You know, the Neanderthals in some instances were burying their dead, treating their dead with respect, grieving, I suppose, you know, digging graves, putting the bodies in, in some cases covering them over with flowers. You know, we find pollen in the in the soil sometimes that suggests that, 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 that flowers were put over the dead. Neanderthals, you know, a, a species that's long gone. And so our our species, like the Neanderthals, uh, have been moved to treat the dead in respectful ways. You know, they're not just they're not just seeing someone drop dead and then walk away from them. Uh, there's a an anthropologist who, who when asked what's the earliest sign of civilization, uh, and the people who asked the question expected you know a piece of pottery or or a house or whatever, and she said a healed femur. And when asked to elaborate on it, she said, well, if a human being breaks their long bone in their leg, it, it takes a couple of months maybe to, to knit itself back together. And during that time, the person can't move, you know, and would be dependent upon someone else caring for them, bringing them food, bringing them water for a couple of months. And so where you find skeletal evidence of a healed broken femur, it tells you that that person knew someone that was prepared to care for them until their leg was healed. And she suggested that that's the, that's the beginnings of civilization. That's the beginning of people valuing one another. And I suppose by extension, coming together to, to build something amazing, extraordinary, like Silbury Hill or Avebury, is that it's seeing beyond yourself. You know, you're doing things that aren't just about feeding, staying warm, making babies. You're doing things that are above and beyond the call of duty. So you're, what you're looking at in Silbury Hill and the rest is the, is the coming of the modern world. It's still a way off in the distance, far beyond the horizon, but you know the modern world has been kind of conjured into being and for the first time it's within reach. It's far away, but it's coming. Placing one foot in front of the other, our ancestors walked into history. In the early Bronze Age, a much-travelled man died and was buried with full ceremony and adornment in Amesbury, 
This man became a time traveller with so much to tell us when he came back to life in the 21st century. Next time, in my love letter to the British Isles. To ensure you get each new episode of this podcast as it goes live, don't forget to subscribe, write a review and share with your friends. You can follow in my footsteps as my journey unfolds across these aisles of ours by going to my podcast's Instagram account, Neil Oliver Love Letter, and seeing the places I've chosen. For further reading about these favourite destinations of mine, you could try my book. It's called The Story of the British Isles in 100 Places, and it's published by Transworld. Neil Oliver's Love Letter to the British Isles is produced by Paul Ratcliffe and Neil Oliver for Fat Belly Films. Music is by Malcolm Goldie. Additional research was carried out by Oscar, Evie, Lucian, Archie and Teddy. Finance was taken care of by Catherine and Trudy. The post-production is the work of Althorpe Studios and the graphics are by Paul Plowman. And a special thanks to the people across history who have made and continue to make these isles such an incredible place. This has been an FBF Podcasts production. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.